Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would so exalt the Lord Jesus before us now, that the high king on the white horse would capture our imaginations and lay claim to our allegiance forever. Amen. <clears throat> Whenever I turn on a video, my, my uh, computer sits right on the dining room table, right in the middle of everything in our house, and uh, anytime I'm, I'm uh, watching a YouTube video or some crazy video that Denny sends me or something like that, it's like these vultures just swoop down on my shoulders, you know, and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by three or four children and they're all tuned in, so eager not to miss anything. And um, this week I was trying to hide from them the, the scene that I was watching from the movie The Two Towers. Maybe you've seen um, the movie version of, of Tolkien's uh, novel The Two Towers, um, this wonderful scene where you know, before I tell you about the scene, I've got to tell you this. Um, um, there are three figures in, in, that, in that movie, and I think it corresponds to the book also, who have, as it were, come back from the dead. You know, Theoden, the king of uh, Rohan, he was in this sort of trance-like state that Gandalf comes and he breaks the spell, and it's like he wakes from the dead. All of a sudden, the age falls away from him, his his skin is, is no longer so hoary and crusty. It's like he's come back from the dead. And then Aragorn, you'll remember in the movie version, he goes over the cliff and everybody's weeping. They think he's gone. They think he's dead. And then he, he finds his way to that horse, you know, and he pulls himself up on it. And the horse uh, takes him down there to Helm's Deep. And then it's like he's back from the dead. The same way Gandalf, right? Gandalf was taken by the Balrog down into the, the flame and the darkness. And then he comes back from the dead. Well, uh, Theoden, as he's arming for battle, the, you know, this, this, this climactic scene, the orcs are all, if you, if you haven't read the movie or seen the book, the orcs are the bad guys. They're all gathered there at Helm's Deep, and, and they're surrounded, and they're cut off, and they think they're all going to die. And it's decided that Theoden and Aragorn are going to ride out to, to face the orcs. And uh, Theoden actually says to Aragorn in the book, he says, maybe we shall cleave a road or make such an end as will be worth a song if any be left to sing of us hereafter. And then Theoden goes to arm himself for war. And as his attendant comes with his battle armor, Theoden says to this man, who am I gambling? And the man answers, you are our king, sire. And Theoden responds, and do you trust your king? And the man says, your men, my lord, will follow you to whatever end. Theoden repeats the words, to whatever end. And then he says these lines that in the book, they're, they're inscribed on this thing that Aragorn reads to the others. Theoden says the words, where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind on the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. 
So anyway, I'm watching this scene, this glorious scene to prepare for my sermon, and, and here come the kids, you know, at my shoulders, and I, and I just feel this compulsion to say, I'm so glad you guys are so interested in my sermon preparation. <laughs> we have come to Psalm 45, and Psalm 45 is this magnificent psalm addressed to the coming king, the future king. This psalmist speaks as one who is steeped in the promises of God and whose hopes are vested in the one the word of God says will come to conquer and triumph and make new. So I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 45. And as you turn there, uh, I want to tell you about the, the ring structure of the psalm. And so if you've gotten there, look at, look at Psalm 1, where the psalmist says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. He's talking about what he's doing right? This is the psalmist talking about himself and what he's doing. Then look at verse 17. I will cause, the psalmist is speaking again for himself, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. So at the beginning and the end, the psalm tells you what he's doing in the psalm. His, his heart is boiling over and he's causing the king's name to be remembered. And then within that, he starts talking to the king in verse 2. And, and he describes the king as this most handsome of the sons of men. And then that's matched at the end, if, you, if you're thinking in terms of these concentric rings, or perhaps if you want to think of it as a chiasm, uh, in verses 13 through 16, uh, the psalmist describes the glorious beauty of the queen. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber. And then he goes on talking about how magnificent she is. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist addresses a series of commands to the king. Gird your sword on your thigh. Ride out victoriously. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. And then similarly, in verses 10 through 12, he addresses a series of commands to the queen. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear, forget your people. And, and then he's, he's talking about what will result from this for, for her Within that, in, in verse 5, he talks about how the peoples fall under the conquering king. And then matching that, verse 9, he says, daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. So that the idea is he's conquered the peoples, and then he's taken captive the daughters of, of the kings and the, and the noble women. And then verse 6, uh, your throne, O God, is forever. He's talking to the king. We'll talk about this. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of... So he's talking about the throne of the king and the, the king's scepter. And that's matched by verse 8, where he speaks of the king's robes and, and the music that surrounds him. And then in the middle of the whole thing is this statement in verse 7. Addressed to the king, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's the climactic statement of the psalm. And that word, the verb that's used there, God has anointed you, that's the Hebrew word that we get the word Messiah from. God has made you the Messiah, the anointed one. So this whole psalm is focused on this king. This whole psalm is celebrating this longed-for figure who has finally, at least here in the psalmist's imagination, arrived to bring about renewal. We're, we're going to take it in three parts. You can see on the bulletin you've got an outline. 
In verses 1 through 5, we'll see the king's conquest. And then in verses 6 through 9, we'll see the king enthroned or the king's throne. And then in verses 10 through 17, the preparations are made for the king's wedding. Uh, Before we charge into verse 1, look at at the superscription of this song. It says, to the choir master, according to lilies, a mosquil of the sons of Korah, a love song. And it's interesting, the way this is is, um, described, there there are a number of correspondences between Psalm 45 and the Song of Solomon. So both are sort of wedding songs for the king of Israel, if you will. And and, um, the reference to lilies and the reference to a love song, these are are points of contact, among others, between the Song of Songs and Psalm 45. Uh, This is another one of the songs of the sons of Korah. Uh, so I don't know who wrote this, one of the sons of Korah, uh, but, but look at what he says here. He says here in verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Um, this, this word that's rendered overflows, it, it depicts something that is, that is boiling or stewing. You know how you put water in a pot and you put it on the stove and you turn on the stove and, and the water begins to boil? The, the, the overflowing, it's like what's, what's stewing inside him is now boiling over the sides. That's, that's what's happening here in this psalm. And he says, literally, he says, my heart stews on a good word. And that description of a good word, that's rendered pleasing theme in the, in the ESV, um, that suggests that what he's thinking about is the Bible. His heart is stewing on a good word. What's the good word? Well, I think it's the promise. The promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That the seed of the woman is going to be the the descendant of Abraham who's going to bless all the nations. That the descendant of Abraham is going to be the king from Judah's line who's going to always have the scepter between his feet. And I think he's, and then eventually it becomes clear that this is going to be the descendant of David, whose throne God is going to establish forever. So I, I would suggest to you that the psalmist is meditating on these promises from the Bible, and it's, it's beginning to well up and boil over in him. And so he says, I address my verses to the king. So he, what, he, what he's doing is he's saying, This psalm is about the promised king. So then he continues there in verse 1, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. If you're uh, a frequent reader of the whole Bible, you might recognize that phrase, a ready scribe, as being the one used to describe Ezra. You remember uh, in Ezra chapter 7, in verse 6, Ezra is described as a ready scribe. And, and another way to, to think about that is he's a swift scribe. And I think the idea is he's a quick student of the Torah, and he knows where things are, and he knows how to find what he's looking for in the book. He knows his way around, and every, every time he opens the book, he, he knows the context, he knows, he knows what, what, what he's going to find there, and he skillfully navigates the law. And I think that's what he's saying about himself here. My tongue is like the stylus of a swift scribe. He's someone who knows the Bible, and now that Bible is going to come out of him in poetic form. So he's thinking on these promises about a king from David's line, and he's looking to the day when this figure will actualize 
what God has said he's going to do and triumph over all evil and cleanse God's defiled world. And as he longs for this this coming king, he begins to speak to him in verse 2. And he first says to him, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, there's, there's a curious kind of uh, both and in the Old Testament about the coming king. Because on the one hand, Isaiah is going to say over in Isaiah 53, remember this? He says, he had no uh, beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him. But, but now this psalmist is saying, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. What's he saying? How, how do we put these two things together? Well, I think that what we've got here is he is so yearning for the, for the promises to be fulfilled, for the wrongs to be set right, that, that his hopes make the appearance of the king beautiful without really respect to what his appearance is. You see what I'm saying? So I think that we can hold both of these things together because it's, it's the longing for the king that makes him handsome, and, and that doesn't... That's not in conflict with Isaiah saying, there's not going to be anything particularly distinctive about this guy when, when he actually appears. Uh, he, he's going to seem like any other person. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. What is that communicating? Grace is poured upon your lips. I think the psalmist has in, in, in mind 2 Samuel 23 verse 2 where David had said of himself, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, and his word is upon my tongue. And so I think what the psalmist is doing here is he's thinking about the promises made to David, and then he's thinking about the pattern of David's life. And, and, and he's contemplating these things, and he's expecting the, the king from David's line to be the fullest expression of everything that we saw in David. So if David was a king who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God, that seems to be what the psalmist expects about this promised king from his line. Grace is poured upon your lips, meaning uh, the word of God is going to be on the lips of this one who is to come from the line of David. And because he's the fulfillment of what was promised and the fullest expression of the Davidic pattern, look at the next phrase there in verse 2, therefore God has blessed you forever. This is the one whom God is going to bless forever. Remember the promise in in 2 Samuel 7, 13? The Lord said to David, I will raise up your seed after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I think that's put in poetic form. It's restated in poetic form here as the psalmist says, Therefore, God has blessed you forever forever. And as he thinks on these things, it's as though his stewing heart gathers to a boil and overflows in these laudatory cheers that take the form of commands. Maybe this happens to you while you're watching basketball on television. Maybe you're watching Steph Curry. Sink it, Steph! You know, you're giving him commands because you're so excited about his abilities. And that's what's happening for the psalmist here. As he contemplates this king, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty man, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. 
He's celebrating this king. And the celebration stews up in him and overflows in these commands that he addresses to the king, whom he's calling to arm himself for war. This king he wants to come and wants come to conquer. And so he celebrates the mighty splendor and majesty. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting when, when it says here, in your majesty, ride out. Um, the, you, you could translate this a little bit differently. You, one way to translate it, you, you could say, and in your majesty, prosper. Because actually, the, 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 that's the word that's translated victoriously, victoriously there, the word prosper, and it's a command addressed to the king, prosper. Remember where that word occurs in the psalm? Psalms elsewhere? Remember Psalm 1-3? Blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and everything he does prospers. That's, that's the word that's used here that's translated victoriously. In your majesty, prosper. And then you could render these other phrases. You could translate this something like, ride out on the word of truth. That's, that's what's translated uh, um, for the cause of truth there, ride out on the word of truth. Um, so, so this reference to the truth gets to the way that the power behind this king is going to be the power of righteousness, the power of God's word. That's what's going to prosper this king. And then the rest of the line, ride on the word of truth, and then you could translate this, and in the humility of righteousness. Ride on the word of truth in the humility of righteousness. This is what's, what's rendered here, uh, meekness and righteousness. But I, I think you could just as well translate it, the humility of righteousness. And I'd like to think with you about the humility of righteousness for just a moment, because it's, it's important that we grasp this. How, how is it that righteousness is humble? Well, in the instructions given for Israel's king in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, Israel's king is explicitly commanded that what he's to do when he sits on the throne of his kingdom is to, to write out in his own hand a copy of the Bible. And then he's to keep it with him all his days, and he's to read in it always so that he doesn't turn from the right hand or to the left from what the Bible commands. And then, and then Moses says, so that his heart may not be lifted up over his brothers. Moses understands how kings work, and God, God understands what happens. It's, it's like what Lord Acton said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and so the king of Israel, his heart is not to be lifted up over his brothers with the result that he thinks, well, I can oppress, I can oppress them. I'm the king. I can do what I want. And his heart is not to be lifted up over the law so that he thinks, well, God's word doesn't apply to me. I can do what, I'm the king, I do what I want. No, this king is going to ride out on the word of truth and in the humility of righteousness, the humility that says, I am subject to the word of God. The humility that says, these people are not here to serve me, I'm here to serve them. This king is, is embracing the humility of righteousness. He has a power that flows from God's promises. And he has, a, he has a humility that results in righteousness and a righteousness that is humble. 
because it accepts God's boundaries. And then the last line of verse 4 is translated, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. So, so what the psalmist is saying is, when you gird on your sword, when you go out to battle, awesome deeds, fearsome deeds will be accomplished by you. And having addressed this series of commands to the king, he then describes his triumph, his, his conquest in verse 5. He says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Now, that's the way that the translators render it because they're smoothing it out for us. But the, the word order in the original communicates the psalmist's excitement. Because what happens here in the original is the psalmist, he starts into this phrase and then he interrupts it. So, so literally, what the psalmist says here is, your arrows are sharp. And then he exclaims, peoples fall under you. And then he continues, in the heart of those who are enemies of the king. So, so this is a psalmist who's worked up and these, these phrases are coming out of him as he celebrates this victory of the king that he's longing to see come. Having described his conquest, the conquest of the one who comes, banishing the despair of Psalms 42 through 44. Remember where we've been? We've been in these psalms where the psalmist is asking himself in 42.5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then that question is asked again at the end of Psalm 42, and then again at the end of Psalm 43, and then again it comes down in 44.25, our soul is bowed down to the dust. And the relief comes when the king comes. And having described this longed-for king who comes banishing the anguished despair of Psalms 42 through 44, he's a welcome sight to these who cheer on his victory. And now the, the conquest is accomplished, and so the throne is established in verses 6 through 9. And the psalmist, speaking to the king, says in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then it's clear that he's still speaking to the king because the thought continues into verse 7 where he talks about how God, your God, has anointed you. So here in Psalm 45, 6, the psalmist seems to address the king as God. Now, I don't think, I mean, you know, the early church, the early church had a lot of debates about um, about the identity of Jesus and the nature of Jesus and the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. And, and I don't think that this psalmist living before Jesus had what we, what we might refer to as Chalcedonian Christology or Nicene Trinitarianism. These are early councils of the church, you know, in 325 and 451 that, that formalize what the church believes about these things. I don't think the psalmist had all that worked out. Here's what I would suggest is the way that the psalmist is, is thinking about this. Adam was the visible representation of the invisible God, right? Adam was God's own image and likeness. And as such, Adam was God's representative on earth. And then flowing out of that, it was common, not only in Israel, but in other uh, ancient countries, ancient nations, it was common for them to identify their king as the unique representative of their God. 
And I think this is the way the psalmist is thinking. He's seeing the descendant of David as, as the image and likeness of God above all other image and likenesses of God. And, and he's seeing the king from David's line as the unique representative of, of the God of Israel. I think that explains why everybody seems to be surprised when Jesus actually shows up and they're, they're, they're shocked that he's doing things that only God can do, right? Nobody, nobody sees Jesus work a, work a miracle and responds, oh, well, naturally, we knew the, the, the Messiah was going to be the incarnation of our God. No, they're all, they're all saying things like, well, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? It's like they've got to get their heads around the fact that Jesus is actually God. So while it would be a mistake, I think, to assume that the psalmist has all this worked out that's going to be revealed later as, as, as uh, Revelation progressively unfolds from the Old Testament into the New, it would also be a mistake not to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the, what the psalmist is saying, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of these lines more than the psalmist expected, right? So Jesus embodies everything the psalmist expects and some. And the psalmist says to to this future king that he's longing for, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's identifying probably the throne of David's king with the throne of God, and he's rearticulating the promise. Remember 2 Samuel 7.13? I just quoted it a moment ago. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's he's just restating that promise here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom. That word scepter, it's a key word. It picks up significant instances of this word scepter across the Old Testament. Uh, It was a scepter that would be between the feet of the Lion of Judah in Genesis 49. It was a scepter that that uh, would arise in Israel in Numbers 24, 17 to crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And it's a scepter that will be used in Psalm 2, verse 9 to shatter, right? You'll, you'll rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with, 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 with this scepter. So this scepter here, the scepter of your kingdom, is also calling on these earlier statements in the Bible And the scepter that this king will use is the scepter of uprightness. So this is a king who's going to come and he's going to do right. And then then his righteousness is articulated there in verse 7. As the psalmist says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. As I was thinking on this, um, I, didn't, I didn't get this movie clip, but it came to mind, and maybe somebody will tell me which, which one of the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia movie, movies it's in afterwards. Um, in one of those movies, there, there's this king, the, the, the guy who's in line for the throne, and, he's, and he's, it's the silver chair, that's the one. He's locked in this silver chair, and this, this witch has him, yeah, naturally. Uh, this witch has him enchanted. And as they're trying to free the king, and as they're, they're liberating the king, a powerful temptation comes from the witch. As she appears before him, lovely and enchanting, and she promises to him, if you'll side with me, 
and she's speaking in this wooing, musical voice. If you'll side with me, I'll make you my prince, and you will reign with me. And as you watch this, as I watch this, what I'm thinking to myself is, everything rests on how he does in response to this temptation. And that's a powerful temptation. And, and then I'm knowing within myself, so many times I've given way before temptation. And I've not resisted the allure of evil. And what this text is telling us is that our king every time made the right choice. Every, even when evil looked alluring, even when it was enchanting and musical and wooing him into darkness, he hated it. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And because of who he is, because of his character, the psalmist says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So this is a king. And right here in the center of this psalm's structure, this is a king who always makes the right choice. And, and because of his right choices, he has an unparalleled status and an unmatched gladness that he enjoys in God's presence. He is anointed as the king of kings, and he, he enjoys the oil of gladness beyond anyone else. So this is a king about whom we can feel an unreserved enthusiasm. And then corresponding to the description of his throne there in verse 6, we have this description of his fragrant robes and of the music that fills the air around him there in verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. So you, you can see the scene, can't you? And you can, you can almost smell the, the perfumed robes that adorn this king. And you can hear this delightful music in the air. This king has triumphed. And in his reign, the joy of peace rings forth. And having seen his conquest and his throne, we now come to his wedding. And, and before we look at these verses, consider for a moment the way that you expect in this world, whether in the ancient world or the present world, the way that you expect the women of conquered people to be treated. You know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for them to be treated shamefully, for them to be abused. You, you don't expect a king to defeat rebels and then to find the women who are fleeing him, and to lift them up out of the mire in which he has found them as they flee him, and to treat them with tenderness and delicacy, and then to place them among those who have honor in his court, and then to select from among them a bride for himself. But that's what this king does. And, and now the psalmist is addressing the bride that the king has chosen for himself in verse 10. And he says to her, Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. It's, it's almost like Paul saying to the church, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, take hold of the upward call in God. 
Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And if you'll do this, if you'll hear the call, and if you'll come to the king, he will desire your beauty. He will be pleased with you. I think we could translate this into our day, and we could say, if you're here this morning and you belong to, to an, a people or a loyalty group or a, a, a group that is ranged against King Jesus, you need to know that he has conquered the one at the head of your ranks. He has defeated the, the ruler of this world. That ruler of this world was cast out when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. So your people have already been defeated. And the opportunity that is now open to you is to hear this call and to incline your ear and to forget your people, to forget the false gods that you worshipped, to forget the false ways of understanding the world that you have embraced, and to come to the king. And if you'll come to Jesus in faith, if you'll turn from your sin and your background and you'll come to Jesus in faith, the king will desire your beauty. He will be pleased with you. He will set his favor and love on you. And then the psalmist says to her there in verse 11, since he is your Lord, bow to him. This this, uh, command to her to bow to him also picks up on earlier things in the Bible Earlier instances where people bow to others, you may, you may remember that in Joseph's dreams, Joseph dreamed of, of his, his brothers and his parents bowing down before him. And one of, the, one of the ways that the author of Genesis shows you that Judah is taking up the place of honor in Joseph's place is that in the blessing of Judah, uh, it, it is said to Judah, Judah, your brothers will bow down to you. So, so what Joseph dreamed happening to himself, that, it's like that's taken and applied to Judah in Genesis 49.10. 49.9, sorry. So, so now this bride, this Gentile bride, is being urged to bow to her Lord. And if she'll do this, look at verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. So in the ancient context, you know, you've got this, this scene where this, this foreign princess is being told, if you will submit yourself willingly to this king who has decided to make you his bride, he will be delighted in you and you will receive tribute from all the foreign powers that he has conquered. And then the, the glory of the scene with... Um, with the, the throne room and the ivory palaces and the instruments, all of that is now complemented with the glory of feminine beauty in verses 13 through 16. As the psalmist says, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. So this captive daughter has been clothed with robes interwoven with gold. And then it continues in verse 14, in many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following her. So there's this troop of ladies now that, that, that join this woman that is coming to the king to be married to him. Verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. 
And then the psalmist addresses one last word, I think, to the the princess, the queen, to be here in verse 16 as he says to her, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. So, So in the scene that's depicted here, the king and the queen are going to be joined in marriage, and they're going to be fruitful and multiply, and they are going to fill the earth with princes that come from their line, that extend the rule and reign of the God of Israel. And then the psalmist addresses one last word to the king in verse 17, as he says to him, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, which is exactly what God promised to David. God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 9, I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. And then the, the, the promise to Abraham was, in, in Genesis twenty two eighteen that in you and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And look at what verse 17 says here. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. There will be no end to the celebration of the king from the line of David. In this novel, The Two Towers, Tolkien has a cluster of of scenes here, uh, right after the one that I alluded to above. In one of these scenes, as they're about to join the battle, Aragorn, the the king um, who who has, uh, in a sense, come back from the dead and is on the way to the throne, he he goes up on the ramparts and he begins to address the, the enemy. And he says this to them. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. So they're at Helm's Deep there. It's referred to as the Hornburg. No enemy has ever conquered it. And then he says to them, depart, or not one of you will be spared. Not one will be left alive to take back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. So it's a bold scene because he's surrounded. They're cut off. It looks like they're about to be smashed. And then he's telling them, you don't know how great a danger you're in. And then Tolkien writes, So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone, above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies, that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley, and some looked up doubtfully at the sky. And then there's a roar and a blast of of fire, and then the, the battle is joined, and Aragorn and Theoden, they ride out, and as they make their way through... As they make their way through the enemy, Tolkien eventually gets to this this paragraph where he says, There suddenly, upon the ridge appeared a rider, clad in white, shining in the rising sun. Over the low hills the horns were sounding. Behind him, hastening down the long slopes, were a thousand men on foot. So here's Gandalf, and, and, and Aragorn says, Behold the white rider, Gandalf is come again. And then Tolkien writes of Gandalf as he, as he rides down upon the enemy. He says, down leaped Shadowfax, that's Gandalf's horse, like a deer that runs sure-footed in the mountains. The white rider was upon them, and the terror of his coming filled the enemy with madness. The wild men fell on their faces before him. The orcs reeled and screamed and cast aside both sword and spear, like a black smoke driven By a mounting wind they fled, wailing they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees, 
and from that shadow none ever came again. Psalm 45 anticipates a king whose coming is going to resolve all the emotional pain felt by individual members of the people of God and felt by the people of God as a whole. What we saw in Psalms 42 and 43 and Psalm 45. This king is going to fulfill the blessing of Abraham by conquering the seed of the serpent, by overcoming all who curse God and his people and thereby blessing all the families of the earth and rolling back the words of judgment that God spoke in response to sin. This is the king, the seed promised to David. He will reign and he will be as glorious as his Gentile bride will be beautiful. He will conquer the world and fill it with the aroma of his glorious humility and the joy of his reign. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that are more thrilled with the one who is to come than than the worldlings are when their grain and new wine abounds, than they are when their team wins the national championship. Lord, cause us to be rooted and grounded in this hope. Make us true to it, we ask. And we pray that you'd make us faithful to call others to turn while there's time. They don't know their peril. We pray for grace to to warn them, to summon them, and we pray that your spirit would cause them to respond to the words of this psalmist as he addresses these foreigners with the words, since he is your Lord, bow to him. And we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.